Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Calling the Shots for Pediatric Asthma Control, Integrating Biologics into the Treatment Plan to Enhance Outcomes. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi. I'm Dr. Bradley Chips. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist and allergist in private practice at Capital Allergy and Respiratory Disease Center in Sacramento, California. My name is Dr. Alan Kaplan. I'm a family doctor from just north of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. I'm the chairperson of the Family Physician Airways Group of Canada and the vice president of the Respiratory Effectiveness Group. Welcome. Our first step in looking at an asthmatic child is to understand whether or not they're controlled and if not, why they're not controlled. So we look at control by looking at issues of symptom management and exacerbations. Basics like, first of all, are they taking their medication? Are they taking it properly? Do they have an action plan? Do they have comorbidities such as GERD, obesity, sleep apnea, and mood issues that can affect quality of life? And to look at what the attitudes are of the patient in terms of their medications and their outcomes. The GINA recommendations for 2023 really highlight the differences between those under the age of 12 and over 12. We're stepping up therapy in step four and five, the different age groups, increasing our steroid dose, increasing our bronchodilator as we move up the severity threshold. The ICS for Moderol strategy has more evidence over the age of 12 than under the age of 12. But regardless, for step five, we're doing phenotypic assessment. We're adding a LAMA first, but then we're actually deciding which biologic based on a phenotypic assessment. One of the huge issues in terms of an asthmatic person is their use of oral corticosteroids. They get used both for exacerbations, which can happen frequently, and some patients for maintenance therapy on a daily basis. And while that certainly is life-saving for someone who has an exacerbation, we don't want people to be using steroids because of the risks that they entail. Bone mineral density, fractures and osteoporosis, glaucoma and cataracts, sepsis, GI bleeds, and pneumonia. So, Alan, when would you recommend our primary care colleagues to refer a patient to a specialist for add-on biologic therapy? Well, Brad, there are recommendations from both GINA and ERS-ATS. I think what's really important here is that we have to get the patients that need into the specialist that can help them, whether it's because they're not controlled and having quality of life issues or whether they're having exacerbations and the requirement for steroids. These are all things we want to improve in our patients. Let's begin by taking a look at the efficacy data for biologics approved for children. First, TH2 biologics are for patients who have an eosinophilic signal in both their peripheral blood and the airway compartment. Currently, we have three that are approved for ages six years and up, omelizumab, moderate to severe persistent asthma, mepolizumab, an anti-IL-5 for severe eosinophilic asthma, and dupilumab, an IL-4-13 blocker for moderate to severe eosinophilic asthma and for oral corticosteroid-dependent asthma. Benlorizumab is an IL-5 blocker also but it's only approved for 12 years of age and older, and the data does not allow us to separate the children's data. Therefore, we are not going to evaluate it in this presentation. Omelizumab has been available for 20 years in the U.S. market. This ICATA study, which was in an inner-city asthma population, looks at a group of patients treated with step 3 and 4 genotherapy, ICS, and a long-acting beta agonist. For those patients who had a exacerbation during the washing period, omelizumab dramatically decreased the seasonal occurrence of exacerbations, not only in the spring, but also in the fall compared to placebo. 
Nepalizumab is approved six to 17 years of age in acute exacerbations of asthma were decreased by 27% in this trial, but there were no significant differences in lung function or other secondary outcomes. In the Dupilumab study, we can see that severe asthma exacerbations and change in baseline in FEV1 were significantly higher in patients having a type 2 response with blood eosinophils greater than 300 and an exhaled nitric oxide greater than 20. This translated to an improvement in FEV1 favoring Dupilumab, and this efficacy was sustained for 52 weeks. Alan, do you have any comments about oral corticosteroid sparing effects in this study? I think it's really wonderful that many of these studies also showed a very significant oral corticosteroid sparing effect. We could actually decrease that both by decreasing exacerbations and also decreasing people on maintenance. So it's really exciting to be able to change the long-term prognosis of patients in terms of their asthma and other conditions as well. I think that the biologics that are currently available for elevated T2 asthma have been extremely beneficial in our management of these patients. Let's begin by discussing the key safety aspects of biologics as a class of medications. Biologics are generally safe, and they may present with some common adverse events. Local reactions with erythema and swelling can occur in the first 30 minutes after an injection. Absensive reactions occur with all of the biologics we're considering today, omalizumab, methylizumab, dupilumab, and also benlurizumab. The only biologic that requires an epinephrine autoinjector is omalizumab, but these reactions are very rare in less than 0.5% of patients. Eosinophilia, which is transient and occur with dupilumab, which is primarily a trafficking problem with the eosinophils led by eotaxin increase. And parasitic infections are a theoretical concern with Tupelumab, but in the developed countries such as the United States, has not been a clinical problem. So Brad, other than mild local reactions, there's just this real minuscule risk of hypersensitivity reactions. Do you ever see those, Brad? Almost never in my practice. In the 20 years we've had omalizumab, I've seen one severe reaction that required admission to the hospital. And we take care of a lot of patients on biologics, over 400 in the practice. It's just not a problem. The biologics that we use in children are safe and patients need to be monitored for side effects. They just don't occur. Let's now look at factors that impact biologic selection. The approved biologics include for atopic dermatitis, dupilumab, for chronic idiopathic urticaria, omalizumab, for chronic rhinocytositis with nasal polyps, omalizumab, mepilizumab, and dupilumab, for eosinophilic esophagitis, dupilumab, for parigo nodularis, dupilumab, and for hyper-eosinophilic syndrome, mepilizumab. So we choose a biologic based upon what conditions we're trying to affect. So for patients who have multiple conditions, such as urticaria and chronic rhinocytositis, we tend to use omalizumab first. For patients who have rhinocytositis and asthma and the eosinophilic esophagitis, we'd use dupilumab. So we want to make the biologic fit the problems we're trying to treat. This is one consideration for choosing a biologic, but we also need to use biomarkers as an adjunct to choose the appropriate biologic for a patient. Alan, can you help us with that? 
There are basically three different pathways in the T2 inflammatory cascade that we talk about to choose our biologics in severe asthma. This is on top of the comorbidities that Brad's already talked about. So we look at blood eosinophil count for people who have elevated eosinophils. We look at IgE levels to look at the B cell pathway. And we look at pheno, which is a measurement of more mucosal illness and fractionated cell nitric oxide, the IOF413 pathway. So these pathways have different biomarkers and therefore will better predict the likelihood of effectiveness medication for the severe asthma. We also have sputomy eosinophils in some centers, which of course would be very useful, but not really part of the algorithm because it's not available everywhere. So the biomarkers for anti-IL-4 and 13 for dupilumab really include people who have elevated T2 based on elevated blood eosinophil count above 150 and a pheno count above 25. The higher the eosinophil count, the higher the pheno, the more likely you're going to have a good response. Because of the very small risk of an elevated eosinophil count because of dupilumab, they sort of cap it at 1,500 cells per microliter because if they already start that high, you would want someone to get a critical eosinophil count. Promaluzumab, we're looking at someone who has allergy, and this is going to be defined by a serum IgE that's elevated, and skin prick testing or specific Ig tests that show the person does have an allergic diathesis. People do have to have exacerbations to be indicated, and once again, the higher the T2 marker, be it eosinophil counts over 200, pheno over roughly 20, allergy symptoms, and we seem to see this more in childhood onset asthma for this type of asthma. For the anti-IL-5 in terms of mepaluzumab, again, exacerbations is the first step, blood eosinophil count over 150. And again, the higher the eosinophil count, the better likelihood of response, the higher the number of exacerbations. And because of the fact that it also treats nasal polyposis, that's also going to be a predictor of response. But all of these agents work on the T2 inflammation. So basically, the higher the level of T2 inflammation measured by biomarkers, the better they seem to work. And we choose our medication based on the likelihood they're going to work based on biomarkers and comorbidities. That was a great summary, Alan. This session will discuss the shared decision-making aspect of care of children with moderate to severe asthma that may need a biologic. It's important that we consider that not only the clinician needs to interact with the patient, the child, but also primarily with the caregiver too. We need to make sure that everyone has their questions answered, that they understand what the side effects of the medication can be, what the expected duration of therapy is, and also to make sure that the economic aspects of a biologic are considered and are addressed appropriately. We have a shared decision-making tool that is on the American College of Allergy as an immunology website that can be used in making these decisions. The specialist will decide which biologic to use based upon the overarching goal of decreasing exacerbation and oral corticosteroid use. The treatment of comorbidities is also very important, so we need to tailor the biologic that we choose to treat the comorbidities the patient has. Alan, could you then take it forward to discuss the role of the primary care doctor in this whole transition? Absolutely. The role of primary care is, first of all, of course, to identify those who would benefit from biologics. So have they had frequent steroid courses? Have they had emergency visits, hospitalizations? Are they using lots of SABA not controlled despite the fact that they're on proper medication? And in between specialist visits, we may be the ones that have to look after the acute exacerbations, and we have to make sure to report those back to the specialist so they can understand how the biologics been working. Many of the biologics can now be administered at home rather than coming into a clinician office or an injection clinic. And there's pros and cons for both. It's time-saving for the patient. It's more convenient. The anaphylactic risk is really very small. Of course, we have to respect it, but it's very, very tiny. So self-administration at home is wonderful for the patient. 
One small issue, however, can be the fact that if patients not being actively monitored, adherence may actually not be perfect. And we may be assuming patients are taking their medication when they're not, which could then lead to disappointing results. It's important to reiterate, therefore, to our primary care colleagues that biologics can be used even with other chronic illnesses, be it hypertension, acute illnesses like fever, respiratory illnesses are not a reason to not give the biologic. Vaccinations are a big issue for children. They have to have them done to prevent other illnesses. Fortunately, there's no effect on the efficacy of vaccination with biologics, like some of the T-cell biologics we use for other conditions. When you're talking to children versus adults, we have to actually modify communication because of the fact that we have both a child and a parent involved. Childhood encompasses from a very young age, where parental decision is really what's happening, to adolescence, where autonomy starts developing, and their shared decision-making becomes really important. The patients and family need to understand that these biologics that are currently available are very safe and can be used to decrease the burden of asthma in a child who has frequent exacerbations and requires oral corticosteroid. Biologics may be extremely helpful in decreasing exacerbations and oral corticosteroid use because we know even 1,000 milligrams in a lifetime of prednisone can lead to significant long-term adverse events. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.